welcome to the Fromer Travel Show. I'm your host, Pauline Fromer. So glad to have you with me, whether you're listening on Colin or on the many other platforms, this show is carried on. And today's an exciting one. We have two distinguished guests with very different specialties, but I think that's going to make the show even more interesting today. My first guest is Joe Yogurst. He is a longtime writer for National Geographic. He has another gorgeous book out. It's called 50 States, 50 Campgrounds, Where to Go, When to Go, What to See, What to Do. Hey, Joe, welcome to the Fromer Travel Show. Hey, Pauline. Uh, good to talk to you again. Thanks for having me on. Well, I, I, you know, it, it's a, it might be selfish of me, but whenever you are on my show, I get the most beautiful book in the mail from National <laughs> Geographic. So I, I'm rewarded not only in getting to speak with you, but in getting to build my library this way. Uh, I'm, yeah, I'm glad I hear I can contribute to building your library. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, at the very beginning of this book, you kind of give a thumbnail sketch of the history of camping. So before we get into the book itself, I want to discuss that because you start with the fact that I, th and I thought this was really fascinating, that 200 years ago, people would have thought you were crazy to take a vacation out in the wilderness, right? Well, yes, they did. Um, and they definitely thought people like John Muir were crazy when he went tramping through the woods and Wisconsin and the Gulf Coast and finally out in California and Alaska. Um, so, yes, um, Henry David Thoreau, everyone thought he was crazy when he spent yeah. that year at Walden Pond. So, uh, yeah, it wasn't a popular pursuit back in those days. The, the wilderness was for chopping down trees and finding gold and things like that. And then how did it change? Who, who, who was the, I guess, Thoreau was one of the people who changed people's minds about the value of nature, right? Um, yes, for sure. He was one. Um, and he came along during the Romantic movement, which was painting and literature and various other art forms of people that started to romanticize nature. And um, I think they had a large effect on the general population. And at first, it was it was wealthy people that started to vacation in the wilderness because they could afford to, and they could afford to to go camping in luxury luxury camps, quote unquote camps in the Adirondacks and things like that. Um, but it gradually filtered down to ordinary people. And I think that the parks movement, the the urban parks movement that started in the mid nineteenth century, with parks like Central Park, also hmm. contributed to people really in, enjoying nature more and deciding that they were going to venture out of the cities into the into the real wilderness to see what it was like. Right. And you also talk about suddenly products were being developed for camping, like in 1849, a forerunner to the sleeping bag. That was actually in 1876. And then the portable camp stove was invented in 1849. And then the interesting thing about this book is there are so many different ways to camp. Uh, really just like there are campgrounds in this book that you have to paddle to. There are no roads that go to them. There are others that are geodesic domes on permanent platforms. Uh, how many different types of, of camping 
is there in the United States? And can you tell us some of your favorite places? Well, I think there's probably a dozen different types now. I mean, people tend to think that it's either RVs or sleeping in a tent. But it goes way beyond that these days. And a lot of them have really come along in the last 20 or 30 years and are really taking off now. Um, one of my favorite movements in camping and that's in this book is tree houses, um, mm. which have gone from basically being just a, a notch above what uh, a kid might build in his backyard tree to, to really little luxury suites in the sky in some cases. Wow. Yeah. Where where would be a luxury suite in the sky? <laughs> um well, in the wine country of California, there's some oh, tree wow. houses. Um, oh. I came across that a sounds treehouse. dangerous. You could have too much wine and fall out of one. Well, you could, yes, but they, <laughs> but they, but they normally have uh, railings around the, uh, the the decks outside. So right. <laughs> I don't think it's any da- more dangerous than taking a Caribbean cruise and having a little bit too much to drink. Yes, <laughs> so. yeah, probably true. Probably true. <laughs> um, and surprising places. There's there's one in North Carolina on the south side of Smoky Mountains National Park, a treehouse resort that's up in up in the uh, the Smoky Mountains. And um, wow. there's another one I came across in southern Illinois in Shawnee National Forest, where I stayed um, during the last trip I took for this book across Illinois. And um, that was a fantastic two story treehouse with a living room, a full kitchen, wow. a bathroom with a hot shower, and an upstairs with a big king size bed fantastic place yeah it almost so you have in the book tents and rv parks and cabins yes how is a cabin camping well it does say campgrounds and a lot of campgrounds now have cabins and they've had cabins for a long time and i found out in doing this book that a lot of them that don't have cabins are adding cabins and or very simple, what they call camper cabins, which are just basic, basic things with wooden bunks that you have to bring your own sleeping bag and pillow and things like that. And the bathroom is down the road. And that's a camper cabin um, as opposed to a proper one, you know, with its own bathroom and furnishings and everything. And I think that they're adding these cabins because it just attracts a whole different clientele of people who don't have a tent or don't want to put up their own tent or or who don't have an RV right. but want a campground experience. Um, and you find this across the nation. Even the big chains that are known for RV camping, like KOA, Campgrounds of America, uh-huh. they've, they've started adding cabins and, and sometimes 10, 20, 30 cabins, depending on how popular and how large the KOA campground is. Now, do you have any favorite cabins? Wow, favorite cabins. <laughs> I know there are 500 things in this book or or I mean what what really struck me about the the book is the variety. I mean, you have one campground set in a historic garden that is shared between Canada and the US. And That's people right. are allowed to like wander back and forth over the border with they, impunity yes. so long as they stay in the garden. What, that, that's right. <laughs> what are some of the other odd, either historic or sociological uh, tents and campgrounds uh, that, that you can talk about? Well, um, there's a very odd service, I would call it, in Washington State um, and Gifford Pinchot National Forest, which is actually across the Columbia River from Portland, but it's in Washington State. 
and they hang hammocks a hundred feet up in Douglas first. Wow. And, um, and they will hoist you up there for a night sleeping in a hammock in, in the, in the canopy of the uh, Washington State uh, Coastal Range Rainforest. So wow. I think... Wait, you get hoisted up, but then what if you have to use the facilities in the middle of the night? I guess you can't. No, no, no. They'll bring you down again. You have to signal them. They, they have a way to signal. Your, your, your guide, your tree guide is at the bottom sleeping in his sleeping bag. And if you have a problem, if you have an issue, if, if you have vertigo or if you need to get, use the bathroom or whatever it is, he will bring you down and then hoist you back up again. So that's part of the service. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? I also thought it was fascinating that in one of the villages that Abraham Lincoln lived in as a young man, uh, they have a, a tenting that has a historic cast to it. Yes, that's right. Um, and um, New Salem State Park in Illinois, um, which is a reconstruction of the, the Salem that existed when Lincoln lived there in his 20s, when he first became a politician, actually. Um, I think there's two original buildings left and the rest are reconstructions, but there's a campsite, a campground, a proper campground for RVs or tents right off of Main Street in, in New Salem. And so wow. you can you can basically sleep in the same place where Lincoln slept for a, a number of years before he went to the White House. Huh. Now, I remember I, I was not a child who grew up camping, unlike you. You, you, <laughs> you talk very movingly in the introduction about how much camping is meant to you. But my father, we went to Europe every year, and he, he his idea of camping was something that you just didn't do because he had to do it in the Army when he was in basic training and <laughs> sure. scarred him for life. Um, so – when I first went camping as a young adult, I was kind of stunned by how close I was to my neighbors. I always thought that camping would mean I'd be totally out in nature, but that can't be the case in most campgrounds. You usually can hear and see people. What are some of the campgrounds in your book where you're really, really deep in nature and you, you just can get away from civilization. More. Well, the first one that comes to mind is um, Big Bend National Park in Texas. Um, in January of last year, I took a trip down there and stopped off at campgrounds in Arizona and New Mexico on the way with my younger daughter, who's really, really big into camping because camping because we did that when she was growing up. And uh, so we hired a guide and uh, got our canoes, and we paddled actually upstream on the Rio Grande into Santa Elena Canyon, which is an 80-mile-long, just giant crevice in the ground between Mexico and Texas with walls on both sides as high as the Empire State Building. Mm -hmm. And um, so we got to a little beach campground um, on the Texas side and stayed there, pitched our tents and our, threw our sleeping bags in and everything else, and... Uh, cooked our meals around the campfire and we were the the three of us my daughter and me and the guide we were the only three people in 80 miles Santa Elena Canyon that night wow and the only way to get to that campground unless you're a mount everest you know level you know rock climber cliff scaler um, is to paddle a canoe or a kayak downriver from one point or upriver from another so that's really out in in the wilderness you know if, for for the United States, otherwise you have huh. to, otherwise you have to hike in, you know, on the Pacific Crest right. Trail or the Appalachian Trail or whatever, um, because most of the 
most of the, the campgrounds in the book are drive up, but I do have some some paddle up and boat up. And those are the ones that are probably the easiest to get to that are really in the wilderness where you don't have to hike for a day to get there. Now, this may be a silly question. I've kayaked. How do you kayak with a tent and a sleeping bag and food and all the gear that you would need? Or do you <laughs> do you take a different type of boat in? No. Um, in the case of this Rio Grande trip, um, my daughter and I shared a, one kayak with some of the equipment stacked in the middle of the boat between us. And the guide had the other one. He was in the very back. And the rest of the boat was filled up almost to his face level, his neck level, with equipment, including... Wow including three tents and um, a portable toilet that he had to set up because you have to take everything out with you. Absolutely oh, everything. Yeah. And all of our food and drink and whatever else we needed for that, for that camping trip. Um, so if you, it's like kind of packing the car, you know, if you get the right balance and you can put anything in a canoe. I guess so. Yeah. I would be so nervous about, you know, my tent or my sleeping bag, just getting drenched and being stuck in the middle of the wilderness all day all night, all wet. But that's, that's me. I'm very urban. Well, and speaking of urban, um, some of the campgrounds are in urban areas. Well, yeah, I think that will be a, a shocker to many people. Like there's now one in New York City. Can there's actually two in, in New York City. There's one on Governor's Island. And there's one in, out in Rockaway Beach. And they're both summer only campgrounds because the weather is a little funky to be camping in the middle of winter in New York City but right. um and it's more glamping which is you know not the tents are already there they're already furnished people are cooking the meals for you that sort of thing um and rather than you know true put up your own pup tent type of camping um right. but yeah they're in the middle of the biggest city in North America um, and and they have big city prices, at least uh, the the one on Governor's <laughs> Island did. What you said in the book, it was $800. Is that a night? Is that per night? Yeah, but that's for two people. <laughs> so, oh, geez. Still. Wow. It's, it's comparable to a high-end. The Four end, Seasons? All, it's, yeah, <laughs> it's comparable to a high-end, all-inclusive beach resort in the Caribbean or the South Pacific. Are there urban campgrounds in other cities? in the U.S. and Canada? Um, I have urban campgrounds, but they're not of the same type. Um, oh. Like Campgrounds of America, because they're a national franchise and they've been around for 50 years, they have urban campgrounds that are set up for people who have, mostly for RVs, but like I said, increasingly with cabins and also putting some tent sites for people who just show up with a tent and a car. Um, you know, outside of St. Louis, there's a KOA. Huh. Um and um, that's, you know, I would say it's in, in the suburbs of St. Louis. And there's another, sure. I have another, I have another campground in Orange County, California, that's the closest kind of big RV park to Disneyland. And it's surrounded by, you know, urban, ur urbanity, urban, that's not urbanity, right, urbanization. Right. Huh. And um, there's another one in Las Vegas that I picked because I figure, well, People may not want to put up a tent in Las Vegas, but they're going to drive their RV there and they need a place to go. So I sure. Yeah, so I picked a, a, a spot in Vegas, which has probably a dozen different RV parks scattered around the city. So there are a lot of urban places. They're not quite glamping or camping. They're more RV-oriented, but they do exist. It's, it's amazing. Now, what about winter tenting? Is that 
a, a popular thing? Did you deal you you deal with the seasonality of this activity? Are yes. there places that are best for winter? Well, I think it depends on if you, it's a specialty, right? Because you need special equipment, not so much the actual tent. You need, you need a very warm sleeping bag for sure. Yeah, sure, sure, sure. Um, which I which I have. I have a, a top end sleeping bag that I've had for thirty four years, and it mm. still looks like it's brand new because it wow. was. I, I I bought the top end for a backpacking trip in the Pyrenees between Spain and France, and um, I knew it was going to be cold up in the Pyrenees, so I wanted the best possible sleeping bag. Wow, and um, and I still have that. That's the still the one I use, and sometimes my kids use it if they're going out camping on their own. Um, so winter is definitely special clothing. Um, what you'd need to do, you know, if you're into cross country, you can do cross country, you know, backpacking, camping trips, and places um, like Yosemite. Yes, on cross country skiing. Yeah, in in Yellowstone and Yosemite wow. and places like that. Um, a lot of the national forests are great places for winter cross-country skiing or snowshoeing camping if you're into that um it's not something i would do other than for a night or two in a row but there are people who do it for weeks at a time um because that's their thing and for sure you run into less people if you go camping in the winter without a doubt right um especially if it's in the snow yeah um, i can't even but, imagine <laughs> um, but i'm i'm somewhat of a wuss uh <laughs> Well, it's such a delightful book. Once again, it's National Geographic. It's called 50 States, 500 Campgrounds, Where to Go, When to Go, What to See, What to Do. Uh, gorgeous photos, as always, because this is a Nat Geo production. Just before I let you go, how long did you work on this? This was quite a labor of love. I mean, 500 campgrounds with details on all of them. Well, they gave me a year to do it, and I couldn't visit 500 in a year. So I had to rely on a lot of places I'd visited before, like for my parks book that came out um, a couple of years ago. Right. I visited or stayed at a lot of campgrounds and cabins for that book. And I relied on family and friends to do some of the, the research for me. So I sent my kids out to investigate places in Wyoming and Montana and in New England. So I had one living in San Francisco and one living in um, Boston. So my daughter in San Francisco is the one who found the tree house in, 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 the, in the vineyards and in, in the wine country in California. Yeah, that sounds magical. <laughs> that just sounds amazing. Well, Joe, it's always such a delight to speak with you. Thank you so much for appearing on the Firma Travel Show. Thanks, Pauline. It's great uh, talking to you again, and uh, let me know when I can be of use in the future. So, oh, my thank hi- you. My hiking and my hiking trails book comes out a year from now for Nat Geo. That's the next one up. So. Oh, congratulations! How wonderful. Okay, we. I, I'm going to move on to my next guest, who is waiting patiently to come on. Uh, so, thank you, Joe, and welcome to Corey Lee. Thank you for appearing on the Fromer Travel Show. So nice to speak with you. Hey, Pauline. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to talk with you. Well, I want to, first of all, many, many congratulations. You are probably one of the most prolific people in travel. You're writing all the time. You're traveling all the time. And now you're doing, and, and you're always doing good, but your foundation sounds just amazing. So I'm going to get back to that. But um, let's talk a little bit about your story. 
uh, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and then about how you got into travel. Yeah, so my name is Corey Lee, and at the age of two, I was diagnosed with spinal muscular atrophy, which is a form of muscular dystrophy. Mm -hmm. And then by the age of four, I was using a powered wheelchair full time. Uh, But I didn't let it stop me. My mom raised me as a single parent and took me on a lot of domestic trips when I was younger. And those trips really just made me keep wanting to travel and exploring further and further. And so eventually in my teenage years, I started traveling internationally mm-hmm. and I launched my blog, Curb Free with Corey Lee, in 2013. And so in the past eight and a half years, it's really been a whirlwind of a journey, but I've been able to visit 39 countries and wow. seven continents in the past eight years. So that's it's been a that, lot of fun. <laughs> that's better than, than most travel writers I know, uh, most able-bodied <laughs> folks. So has it gotten easier for folks who have mobility impairments in the last eight years? Are there more accessible facilities? I think it's definitely gotten a lot easier. I mean, I would say almost weekly, I'm discovering new destinations that maybe have, you know, a brand new tour company that's opened up that caters to travelers with disabilities, or they finally have accessible transportation. And so, for example, I mean, India was a destination that I really wanted to visit my entire life. Hmm. And I unfortunately was not able to because there was zero accessibility within Hmm. the country until just a few years ago. But now there is. So just because something isn't accessible today doesn't mean that it won't be accessible a couple of years from now. So I think, you know, just keep checking it out online and uh, staying informed and hopefully one day we'll see a truly inclusive world. Yeah. Well, let me talk to you a little bit about India. My husband is a physical therapist and uh, a couple of years back, we did a volunteer vacation in India and he actually worked in a hospital, worked with mothers of children who had mobility impairments teaching them PT practices so that they could help their children Uh, improve their mobility. And a lot of these women had been shunned by their families. They were blamed for their children's disabilities. So uh, it's interesting to hear that it, it opened up and has become more accessible. But did you feel accepted there? I feel like it's in certain parts of India, it can be a tough society for people uh, in wheelchairs or with other impairments. Yeah, I mean, I definitely experienced that every time that I would get out of the van and my 400-pound power wheelchair Hmm. and go down the ramp to exit the vehicle. People would just, like, run over from across the street to watch me get out of the van, and Hmm. they were just, like, completely mesmerized by my wheelchair because they had never seen anything like it. They maybe had never seen a powered wheelchair. Wow few days it I was like kind of taken aback by so many people just running over and gawking at me but um then I started you know talking to them and realized you know they were really just curious Uh Um, they had friends and family at home that really needed a powered wheelchair but they didn't have the resources or the maybe the money to be able to afford something like that so it really taught me that trip did how privileged I am to Mm -hmm. be able to have the medical equipment that I need. 
so you you still you so you found out that they weren't uh uh what's the word unfriendly or they weren't dis- disdainful of you they just were very very curious because they've yeah, never I mean, seen I, yeah i mean the people in india were probably some of the nicest people i've ever met they were mm. just uh, honestly just curious i think what other countries have you uh, uh, found that level of curiosity uh, I don't. I mean, India definitely takes the cake with the, huh. with that. Up. But uh, <laughs> right. also, also, Morocco was really interesting, um, and I got a few, a lot of stares in Morocco while going through, you know, the Medina and uh, out in the Sahara Desert. Even I went there and was able to meet a man that actually made a homemade wheelchair for himself because wow. he couldn't purchase a powered wheelchair that like he needed. So he just invented one at home. And when he saw my wheelchair, his eyes like lit up and he was just amazed with it. So um, it's those kind of experiences that I've been able to have that really are so memorable for me and make me want to keep traveling further. Yeah. Do you have a favorite destination? Uh, I would say it's probably Morocco. I mean, it was really just a destination that I never even considered visiting or really Mm. thought about. But then when I actually went there, I mean, it was just the most incredible place in the world. I mean, I was able to visit Casablanca and Fez and Marrakesh and go into the Sahara Desert and even ride a camel. So these experiences that I just never thought would be accessible. And then they were. So it was a pleasant surprise. But I would say aside from Morocco, I'm a huge fan of Scandinavia and think it's probably the most accessible region in the world. Yeah, we were talking about this on the last show. It's also accessible now COVID-wise. Uh both Norway and uh Norway and oh one other country in Scandinavia. I'm blanking on it right now. Have basically said goodbye to all their COVID rules, which was a little shocking. No masking, no quarantining if you get it. Um, for some people, they'll, they'll think that's a good, good idea. Other people will think it's a crazy idea, but their scientists are looking now instead of at infection rates at, um, uh, hospitalization rates. Did COVID clip your wings at all? It definitely slowed me down. Um, Hmm. and I was so used to traveling internationally for the past you know, eight years since 2013 that I really had to take a step back during COVID and focus more on domestic travel. Uh, But I've been able to really discover some amazing places right here in the U.S. And I've done a lot of road trips in the Southeast. And when you and Joe were talking about camping earlier, um, I mean, it was reminding me of some of my experiences that I've had during the pandemic with staying in cabins. And I went to like an alpaca farm in North Carolina. Oh, wow. Yeah, all of this stuff that I would have never done otherwise. But yeah, yeah, the pandemic made me shift and I'm really thankful for it. That was the silver lining. I think a lot of people discovered how wonderful uh, this country is. Another silver lining, and I don't know if you're, well, let's talk about your foundation. That Did that come out of the pandemic, or had you been planning that for, for quite some time? And before we get into how it came about, tell, tell our listeners what it is and what, what it will do. 
Yeah, so the Curb Free Foundation is something that I just launched about a week ago. Um, and we will be providing travel grants to wheelchair users. So on the website, if you are a wheelchair user or know of a wheelchair user, they can apply through a form and let us know what destination they are wanting to visit. It could be anywhere from you know, international destinations like Italy and Japan, which we've definitely seen a lot of interest in already. Mm. But even something as simple as, you know, just going on a road trip to the beach or going camping um, or something like that. So whatever your dream destination is, we really want to help wheelchair users be able to do that. How many grants will you give out and how many applications have you gotten so far? You've been live for a week now. Yeah, so, so far it's uh, been pretty overwhelming, but in the best way, we currently have over 200 applications already that have came in. So the demand is definitely there. Um, wow. and we will be giving out grants just on an ongoing basis as mm -hmm. we receive donations and funds. Um, so if anyone is able to, you can donate right there on the website at the curbfreefoundation.com. Uh, but we're hoping within the next couple of months to be able to give out three, uh, three mm -hmm. trips and three travel grants. So how that's do you, the first goal. How do you decide who gets the grant? So we will have a board um, and a committee that will be going through every single application and looking those over and uh, deciding on which ones to award first. I mean, I hope that eventually we'll be able to give a grant to everyone that applies. But at this stage, uh, we will have to pick and choose uh, sure. who receives the grant at first. But uh, yeah, hopefully one day everyone can get one. Now, did was this a COVID-born idea or was this something you've been planning for a while? It's something that I've been wanting to do really since I first started my travel blog, Curb Free with Corey Lee. I mean, I remember being in Australia, which is one of the first trips that I ever went on after starting the blog. And I was posting all of this content and people kept messaging me and they were saying, you know, well, Sydney looks amazing, but I would never have the money to be able to go someplace like that. And I hmm. think that there are already so many obstacles when it comes to traveling as a wheelchair user. And money is one on top of that because yeah. we have a added expenses um, such as, you know, paying for care attendants to travel with us or for specialized accessible transportation or accessible hotel rooms, maybe more expensive or whatever it may be. There are so many added expenses. And so it's been an idea that I've wanted to do for a long time. But then when the pandemic happened, I finally, you know, was at home for a long period of time and really had the time to take it seriously and launch it. So um, I'm so happy that it's finally out there in the world. Uh, it's it's so wonderful, Corey. I'm so glad you, you, you've been able to do this. Uh, it, it seems like a great follow-up project. I think the last time we talked, uh, for uh, back when I was on radio, you had just launched a children's book with your adventures, which I, I thought was so wonderful uh, to make that type of of travel information of not so much travel information, but that, that, that sort of modeling uh, available to, to children so that they could understand. Tell, tell people a little bit about that book. 
Yeah, so uh, last summer, my mom and I co-wrote a children's book. It's called Let's Explore with Korkor. And so the character Korkor, he is in a powered wheelchair, just like I am. Um, and he visits some pretty remarkable places in the book. And every destination that he visits in the book is one that I've actually been to. Hmm. And I did that because I really wanted, you know, kids that use wheelchairs and they read the book. I want them to know that they can visit all of those destinations that Korkor goes to. And so it's been just remarkable with seeing all of the kids reading the book, sending us pictures of them, yeah. uh, telling us how much they love the book, um, and even planning trips to places because of the book. Um, so it's been a lot of fun, and I can't wait to release another children's book. Hopefully, within the next year, we're starting to write it now, so hopefully next summer it'll be coming out. Oh, that's exciting. Many congratulations. How wonderful. Well, it's always so much fun to to talk with you. I I also follow you on social media and you you keep it real. You were talking about your recent trip to New York and how, uh, unfortunately, the taxis, uh, if you're in a wheelchair, you have to be way in the back. So you're all alone back there, which is, is kind of a bummer, but um but you, you don't let it stop you Corey. um it, yeah yeah i mean there's gonna be i think it's the good the bad and the ugly when it comes with any type of travel whether you use a wheelchair or not and so i try to show all sides of that and um hopefully people can be able to relate and go on some fun trips uh, if they use a wheelchair and learn a lot of information from my blog so yeah, always good to talk with you, Pauline, and thank you so much for this opportunity. Of course, my pleasure. Uh, well, that's it for this week's show. I thank everybody for listening, and may I say to those who are traveling, as always, I wish you a hearty, hearty bon voyage. I'll see you next week. Okay.